You're listening to audio from the Cathedral Church of the Advent in Birmingham, Alabama, a church with a heart for the gospel. Find out more at adventbirmingham.org. It is my privilege to have um, uh, the honor of being with Todd Billings. Um, say a little bit about Todd and then pray. Um, Todd teaches theology. Is there a formal mm-hmm. title to your professor? Professor of Reformed Theology. Professor of Reformed Theology at Western Theological Seminary in Holland, Michigan. And I used to work with somebody from Michigan. If you put your hand up, is that Michigan? Is that right? And where is mm-hmm. Holland? On the hand, so. um, it's, it's right on the thumb there, right on the... On Lake Michigan. And a good heart. So, All right. So, yeah. um, professor of Forum Theology, author of several books. I have quite a few here. Um, Union with Christ. We'll be speaking on this tomorrow at a lunch that we're doing with Beeson. The Word of God for the People of God. Something I've um, read twice, in fact. And it's it's a, an electric book. Um, how to read the Bible, a theological interpretation. So we'll talk some about that. And then most recently, and this is a bald plug, I read this last week, it's one of the best books I've read in quite a while, Rejoicing in Lament. Todd has cancer, um, we'll talk about that some tonight, uh, or this morning, and, and then he'll come back tonight after the 5 o'clock service uh, to uh, uh, do what we call the forum um, with a light dinner, then Todd will um, uh, give a talk, and I think that's what you're talking about, mm-hmm. this is yep. sort of your, your book and your experiences with cancer. So. Todd is um, married to Rachel, to another theologian who teaches Old, Test- Old Testament, also at, at Western, is that right? Mm-hmm. And then two children, um, uh, an adopted daughter from mm-hmm. Ethiopia, mm-hmm. Ethiopia, and a son. Mm-hmm. Um, so this is Todd Billings. Let me pray. Hey. Gracious mm-hmm. Father, thank you for this day, um, for Todd, for a safe arrival here. Um, I pray for, uh, for our next 30 minutes or so that you would be with us and speak to us, um, speak through Todd and... and uh, uh, help us, Lord, um, take this time and make it yours. I pray this in Jesus' name. Amen. 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 Um, and this is a conversation. I'll kind of set some things up, but anytime you want to raise your hand and just pitch in, um, I hope this. My, my intent is to make this kind of interactive. Um, with as I mentioned, uh, hopefully to get you a hook that you might be interested enough to come back tonight and hear Todd if you're so inclined. Um, why don't we start with your life, if you don't mind, just. Give us a brief intro, and then I'm going to, I think, maybe just start with your story about having cancer. We'll go ahead and just kind of jump in with that part. Sure. How you come to faith? Um, yeah. Well, I grew up in the middle of Kansas, in McPherson, Kansas. Um, I was raised in a Baptist family, and um, my parents had actually been medical missionaries before I was born, and so faith was... A really important thing growing up though is actually especially when I took some mission trips myself and spent a few summers overseas that my faith came alive um, much more um, I remember Where going you go? I went to Thailand um, for summer Gibraltar for summer and the Congo for summer so um, and when I came back um, Kansas was my mission field you know that's how I started to view it but um, I went on to college at Wheaton College in Illinois and continued some cross-cultural things which were important for my um, faith. Um, about a year and a half in East Africa, some of which while I was in college, some right after. Um, and then I went to Fuller Seminary in California, was there for four years. 
Um, and then I went to Harvard for my doctoral work. Um, did my doctorate there in theology with um, actually an Anglican theologian mm. named uh, Sarah Coakley. Okay. And, um, and 12 years ago, I took a job in West Michigan. Um, I consider myself a reformed theologian, but I'd never really spent much time in West Michigan. And I was, I was the Calvinist at Harvard. There weren't very many of us. Um, but in West Michigan, where I got this job for a professor of Reformed theology, there were about 60 churches in the Reformed tradition just within like a five to ten minute drive. Huge I mean, part, just yeah. incredible. It's like Baptist here. So, um, yeah, yeah, yeah. So, um, that's been, um, it's been a joy to, to be there. Um, and I've loved teaching there. Um, my um, wife teaches there part-time right now, as you mentioned, at Old Testament. So we have a lot of theological <laughs> conversations when we're not chasing our six-year-old and our eight-year-old. So, yeah. I'm not sure how you make that happen. Um, <laughs> very then, short snippets. Yep. <laughs> and then the cancer came in to the story when? And yeah. Say a little bit about that. In 2012, um, I was um, actually on sabbatical working on a book on the Lord's Supper that just just came, uh, is coming out this week, finally. I had the manuscript in my hand. I didn't know why my doctor had called me in, but I had been having a lot of immune system problems, um, just getting sick with everything that came along. And um, he had discovered that it's uh, blood cancer, multiple myeloma, um, um, he wasn't expecting it at all because I'm far younger. I was 39. The median age is 70 for diagnosis, so far younger than most patients. They did some testing, found I was stage three out of three. So, um, yeah, um, my kids were one and three at the time. And so, um, yeah, within one or two weeks, I was in quite intensive chemo, um, preparing for a stem cell transplant. I had that, was in the hospital for a month and quarantined for three to four months. Um, and I continue on chemo. So I'm on a lower level of chemo, though, so I'm able to work um, at this point two-thirds time. Okay. So. Um, and still consider um, teaching and writing to be my vocation, so I do it as I have energy. So the prognosis with the cancer, what's it's very unpredictable. Yeah. Um, so, yeah, I'm grateful that I've made it five years. Hmm. Um, you know, I've had friends who haven't made it that long. Um, there are some people who are diagnosed who live ten years, but it's um, you know, I still remember, I think it was the last time I was, I get tested every three months. And the last time I was with my oncologist, I said, so I've made it five years, which is, you know, really, really good. Does this mean that I have like a less severe form of myeloma? Because it varies from patient to patient. And um, he said, absolutely not. Mm -hmm. um, um, I really like my oncologist, even though some people uh, complain about his bedside manner. But um, he's he's like, I've had people who have had a long, 
What I have now is a partial remission, so I still have clear cancer levels, but it's stable for the moment. And then when it comes back, it doesn't matter what you throw at it. You know, they're dead within six months. Mm -hmm. But other times, it's not that way. <laughs> um, he says, we just, we have no way of predicting. Yeah. So, so yeah, that's what it looks like. One of the stories that you tell, I guess it's in your book, or it may have been on a video that I saw, um, the morning after you heard, it just was very, mm -hmm. it affected me. I wonder if you tell that story again. It's so simple. I mean, you came downstairs and you started weeping and I think your, your wife came and it was just, could you expand that moment for us a little bit? Yeah, well, I mean, I was telling my wife, Rachel, the news. We, we knew that there was something wrong and that it would could be one of three possibilities and ended up being the worst of the three. And so, yeah, we were just processing that and, and we're both crying. And then our um, one-year-old son came downstairs and he saw us and he started crying too. And he obviously didn't know why we were crying, but he knows that this is not what mom and dad usually do at breakfast so he thought he should you know join in but uh but yeah and then from there treatment started almost immediately mm -hmm. in your book the rejoicing and lament you uh early and it just caught me straight away you talked about the psalms being a companion um and that happened early in your treatment where the chemo hit you Hard and fast, would that be a fair way to mm -hmm. describe it? And mm -hmm. the Psalms were, were right there, almost mm -hmm. bodily is what it felt like when I was reading. Mm -hmm. Mm -hmm. Again, putting the ball in the tee, would you mind just kind of taking that and running with us? Yeah, yeah. When we're facing these kind of assaults. Yeah. How are I mean, the Psalms a companion? For a long time, I've read at least one or two Psalms before I went to bed at night and kind of have that as the last words in my, in, in my mind and in my heart. Um, but I mean, to be honest, I would often kind of cherry pick the Psalms. It's like, well, I don't really want to do that <laughs> Psalm. And I'm not really feeling in despair right now. I'm going to skip this Psalm. And I ended up skipping a lot of Psalms because, you know, over a third of the Psalms are lament Psalms, which have quite intense grief and anger. Um, and I think after the diagnosis, I just stopped skipping those Psalms. Mm. And it wasn't that they just expressed how I felt at that moment. It was much more that they gave me a path to go on. Often, like people would say, you know, how, how are you doing? How's it going? You know, after I've been on chemo for a week and I could not be the expert of that. There was way too much going on mm -hmm. for me to have a very good sense of that. But when I prayed, the Psalms, it gave me a path of saying, yes, Lord, um, you know, why have you hidden your face from me? I'm calling out to you. So it's actually coming into the presence of God, not just going in a corner. Um, expressing the anger, the grief, whether I feel it at that moment or not. But it gives me the path. Mm. And then most psalms of lament end with 
a declaration of hope or a declaration of praise that um, this is the God who has held true to his promise in the past. And so I put my trust in you. And I think even the few Psalms that don't end in that way, Psalm 88, mm-hmm. um, I, some some scholars think they're a fragment, but I, I don't see any real reason for that. I think if you are actually crying out to God, even with Christ's words on the cross, my God, my God, why have you forsaken me? It's a cry of abandonment. But he's also trusting God enough to say, my God, I'm owned by you. You are the one who I go to when I'm most vulnerable. You don't do that to a stranger, right? Um, you don't, in, in some ways, laments are kind of like if you have a very close friendship or a spouse, do you trust them enough to, to, to fight with them? <laughs> Not that we're on the same level of God, but to, to let those, that part of you um, be exposed and to actually trust God enough to be on that path. So there were so many times where I felt like almost that the psalmist was the only one who really could understand what I was going through, like praying with the psalmist and um, and praying with Christ in in the sense because Christ Christ Himself prayed the Psalms in his earthly ministry, and it was a constant reassurance that I was not a pioneer in my suffering, that, um, I mean, when I announced my diagnosis, both to the seminary and to my congregation, um, I, before I gave the words, I used the words from one of the confessions of the Reformed Church that I belonged to with the Heidelberg Catechism that um, I belong body and soul in life and in death to my faithful Savior, that I'm not my own, (laughs) but I belong to this one, Jesus Christ. And this same Jesus Christ is the one who has gone before me. Um, And um, the Heidelberg also has this beautiful section where it reflects on Christ's own lamenting and I was part of the translation committee for this, and it was actually really hard to translate the German because it's very strong. This but is the Heidelberg? Yeah, with the Heidelberg. Um, but um, basically, what we ended up translating was that Christ has undergone hellish anguish for our sake. Hmm. Um, um, not just... Uh, that, that was, yeah. Partly? Yeah. Um, we got a little bit. Yeah, no, that's right. Um, um, not just on the cross and his cry on the cross, um, but in his suffering before then. In a sense, so that we can be healed. <laughs> so that we know that whenever we are troubled in soul um, and in mind and in, in body, we are not alone. That those will not have the final words. We're not in a free fall. Um, because of of Christ, and so the both the Psalms and as strange as it sounds, like the suffering of Christ became very comforting mm. news mm. for me. So another place that was helpful in your book was when you talked about impassibility. It's a 
theological You really wanted that jargon. Yeah. yeah. What, Dive in. <laughs> what is impassibility and does Christ suffer with us? And you talked about half truths that were well intended but not necessarily just Yeah. Ball of ears. Yeah. Well there was a number of um, what, what is impassibility? I'm not sure that's a, a word that everybody here would understand. When we talk about God's impassibility, what do we mean? Yeah. Um, to speak about God's impassibility I, would be that God is not overtaken um, by really any ex- anything external to God, and God does not suffer in the sense of being overtaken being taken by surprise by something outside of him. And um, another way would be um, we all have moments where we are just not ourselves, but um, God as perfect fidelity of covenant love is never not himself. Um, And so um, sometimes when bad things happen that we don't know how to explain. Um, and I think we need to be just okay with that mystery. <laughs> but often what we say to the sufferer in the Christian community is things like, well, you know, God's suffering with you, or God's really mad about this too. You know, I mean, we want we want to emphasize that um, um, Christ identifies with you in that in that suffering or you know God is against the evil the injustice whatever whatever it is the case and I mean I think that's partly right I mean that's a half truth in a sense yep. in that um, God has um, in the incarnation has taken on human suffering as I was just speaking about I mean the suffering of Jesus Christ mm-hmm. is is a powerful um, comfort for us, um, but is it is a it is a human bodily suffering, and um, I found that um, particularly as I was undergoing chemo treatment, I had you know my whole stomach was a series of bruises from all the different treatments that I would be giving myself daily, and then that they would be giving me daily. Like the idea of a disembodied suffering wasn't really helpful or even very coherent like what does it mean to say just in general well god um is suffering with you i mean god doesn't have a body just if we're talking about about god um um and so it's something that i wrestled with um at at that time and ended up ended up with the conviction that in a sense God's covenant love is so faithful and is so steady that that's precisely what allows us to be unsteady <laughs> in the midst of our um, suffering and confusion. That um, we don't need to sort of put God at our level in the sense of saying, well, God was taken surprise by this, you know, just like we were. Or to say... Um, well, God couldn't have done anything about it anyway. Um, and um, especially there are theologians who think it's very reassuring to say things like that. Yep. Um, and uh, I don't. <laughs> um, 
Um, Flip's also true. Even leaping ahead when you had a good report or you had one good week that somebody would well-intended say, well, well, God's healing you. He's See, this is his perfect plan is for your absolute complete health. So it goes, is that right? It goes on both sides? It does go on both sides. And that's, um, I mean, some of it is kind of a Job and the friends of Job situation where, you know, the friends of Job do what is right, which is first, first, which is just be with their friend. And they were silent for a week. Um, it's a long time to be silent with your friends. Um, but then they started giving theological explanations, which were pretty good ones. I mean, if you're going to come up with theological explanations for suffering, you know, fairly plausible. They were wrong. I mean, that's what the Lord tells us, that they were wrong. But, um, but in a sense, there's actually something similar that happens when, when, we, when there's like an unexpected good thing and they're like, and others are like, oh, well, this is what God intended all along. Um, or, you know, this is why God gave you cancer. Or this is why... I mean, one that sticks in my mind is a lot is, you know, I got to know other cancer patients. Um, I got to, there was, there was one other my age with young kids, a guy, a triathlon runner, and he had stem cell transplant in the same hospital a week after me. And, um, yeah, he was dead within nine months. And I think people did not mean it this way, but they're like, Oh, isn't it great that that God blessed you so much that, more than others? And you're just like, no, like <laughs> these are not the right categories. This is not like I'm grateful for each breath, but um, um, I think we need to have a certain modesty about us understanding the reasons why some things happen. I'm not saying that there is no reason <laughs> for even God allowing terrible things to happen to us, but us understanding the reason, that's just not something we have access to. Yeah. And that's actually not where we should focus, I think, our attention. And um, um, some of what I've done writing on more recently and I'm writing on right now is actually how Cultivating awareness of our mortality can help um, with help us move toward genuine resurrection hope. Mm. Death is a gift. Um, right? yeah, yeah, yeah. And I have a whole a whole book project that I'm working on right now when I have energy um, along that along that line. But we tend to think like God's job is to get people out of the hospital, uh, but like. <laughs> God actually does a lot of work through sick people and through our weakness and in the midst of that. And um, God does work when we encounter our, when we just hit the wall with our limitations. And even when we encounter death and deaths that don't seem to make any sense. Um, God's at the work, at work in the midst of that. Amen. So... I'm going to bridge. You've got me. I mean, it's really, it's a great book. I recommend it without reservation. Um, it's a nice bridge to also what you've written about, just the Bible, theological, you know, putting forth a theological interpretation when you read scripture. What does that mean? What What's a theological interpretation? What are the other options and why is this relatively new and just 
what, what does that mean, a theological interpretation of the Bible? Yeah, I think on a basic level, it asks the question, what does it mean to read the Bible as Christian scripture? Um, whether we're in the church or in the academy, we actually can become pretty well acquainted with um, reading the Bible in other ways. So certainly in the academy, it's common to just read the Bible as a um, entryway to ancient history. Um, in fact, my wife wrote her dissertation on the book of Joshua, and she was looking at you know works written on the book of Joshua for the last few decades. She's like, most of these haven't been paying attention to the text. Like, they've been they've been paying attention to the text as a way to reconstruct something behind the text. Whereas, I mean, her feeling was, well, God actually gave us this text to speak through it, like in the form that it's in. Um, and so, um, but on a on a on a just everyday life level, we often use um, the Bible in ways that. Um, kind of confirm decisions that we've already made, sort of so that God's always on our side. Sometimes I call it the smorgasbord approach. Yeah, I really wanted to do this, and I'm going to pull this scripture verse, verse from here and here and here. Or um, I also, another a, a way is what I call the building block approach, which is you have your systematic theology, which you're quite sure of, um, and you know where the verses are, where you get that systematic theology. And when you read the Bible, it's basically to confirm, yes, I have the right building here. Um, instead, I think a theological interpretation is one where you are on a journey with God, a joyful journey of reading the Bible as part of your discipleship in Christ, so that the Bible itself becomes a tool of the Holy Spirit for conforming you and the people of God into the image of Christ. So this isn't terribly original. I mean, I draw a lot upon Augustine. Um, Augustine says, you know, if you read any particular passage of scripture and it does not lead you toward love of God or love and love of neighbor, then you know you have it wrong. <laughs> doesn't matter how much linguistic work you've done, doesn't how, how much, you know, cultural work you've done on ancient... If it doesn't lead to a love of God and love of neighbor, then it's not wrong. And I would just say, you may have a plausible interpretation, but it's not a Christian interpretation. It's not reading it as Christian scripture. So um, I think it's a big challenge um, in the church um, concretely as well, because we want to use the Bible to like help us have a happy marriage and to help us... Um, achieve our own goals and I, I'm all for happy marriages and I'm all for you know a lot of the things that um, we use the Bible for in a sense but um, the Bible itself is a path I think for wrestling with God um, in loving fellowship like God wants to change us through the Bible and so if we're always in charge of setting the agenda um, well I'm going to look to the Bible to find out what good leadership skills are, or, you know, um, uh, then in a sense, we, we mute the way in which God himself wants us to die to the self in our reading of the Bible um, and to live in Christ in our reading of the mm -hmm. Bible. Like, our reading of the Bible needs to be on the path of dying and rising with hmm. Christ. So that's the sort of that's good. core 
core theme. Similar to what you said, beautiful phrase, we need to have a certain amount of modesty <laughs> in the way we approach our own suffering and God's place in that, a certain amount of modesty as we approach Scripture. Mm-hmm. Not coming that we're interpreting the text, but perhaps the text interprets us. Or God masters us yeah. through the text. Yeah, mm-hmm. yeah. That's good. Mm-hmm. The cultural deism, just maybe before I pitch it out and let's see what we'll kind of go with it. It was also in your union with Christ, and I think it's in all of your... It's a, it's a mm-hmm. common theme, maybe, as I'm thinking about the books that I've read of yours. What, what is... What's the, the 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 zeitgeist you might say of cultural deism, whether that's Christian Smith's moral therapeutic deism or the way that the smorgasbord that we bring a grid to the text? Could you yeah. explain that a little bit, and then I'll pitch it out to anybody that wants to ask. Yeah, a lot of that came from my teaching, where um, I'm really not satisfied if people just have the right theological answer. Um, I want them to reflect upon what theology is really animating your life and what's the implicit theology in the way that you live. Um, I mean, just a very simple example um, I, I know of was, you know, a family that was, um, the parents say that they're very committed to church and, um, but you know, they also love sports, and that's a good thing. But um, when their kids are in high school, they're almost never at church on Sunday because of, you know, different different sports things. And then when the their um, kids are out of high school and college and working, they don't attend church. And the parents are like, you know, what gives? This is, this is really, like, we told them that this is important. <laughs> um, but... Oh, you told them? Yeah, exactly. <laughs> but that's exactly what, I mean, the kids are smart enough to pick up on the functional theology. They, they picked up on, yeah, you say this is important, but what's really important is this other thing, right? There's all sorts of areas in our life where that's the case. And so, um, um, functionally, um, when you start looking at functional theologies, I think we tend to be absorbed into um, a kind of American theology that both, you know, the politicians on both the left and the right will draw upon, um, where there is a God, um, but what's really important is for us to be nice to other people. If you're nice to other people, don't kill anyone, then you go to heaven. Um, There's not any real need for redemption. And Christians in particular, if you live a good Christian life, I'm not quite sure what that phrase means, but, you know, we don't certainly need a savior anymore. You just sort of needed a savior maybe when you were getting out of jail and turning your life around or something like that. Um, So there's no need for a mediator. There's no need for, there's no real sense of sin in our functional theology. And even um, um, in a sort of shared functional theology, there's really no need for the spirit. Basically, you just need to be nice and tolerant and, you know, um, um, relatively good to other people, and then you go to heaven. So um, there's all sorts of ways in which we just kind of assume that in our broader culture. And um, I just find that exposing that um, is a challenging thing for us, but also a good thing for us, because I think the gospel is 
radically good news mm. in relation to that. Mm. That, um, in, in fact, we we need a savior, we need a mediator, and God has provided one in Jesus Christ. But um, that means that our life is not in ourselves, but is one of dying to the old self and living in Christ by the Spirit. It's not just about being good, nice, and you know pleasant to other people. Um, and it's not that good people go to heaven. Jesus is the one in heaven. Mm. And if we want to go to heaven, we need to be in love with Jesus because <laughs> he, he's, he's the one who defines where we're going. <laughs> um, and um, so just the radicalness of just, in a sense, the basic good news, the basic Apostles' Creed good news um, is, is, I think, exposed when you look at um, the functional ways and the functional theology that people live um, live with, especially in the American culture. That's good. Can we open a question? Yeah, absolutely. Am I having? Yeah, we thought we would. So. Rhett and Oscar. I recently had a family member go through a um, pretty serious medical issue, and I was talking to him after it was resolved, and I was like, were you scared right before it happened? And he's like, man, deep, deep, deep faith. And he was like, yeah, I was scared. And that um, struck me as odd because, you know, as Christians, we're, we're like, all right, yeah, like, let's shuffle off this mortal coil and get on to the, to the real, like, living. And I, I thought it was, I just, I couldn't really resolve that in my mind <clears throat> as to, you know, why, where that fear came from. And I was wondering, I mean, are you scared or you are? Yeah, I mean... I suspect that he, he probably was feeling many things at once, at least if it was like me. And for me, the biggest reason that I have fear is not so much for myself, but for my kids. Um, and that's actually where the lament hit the deepest. I mean, we were in the adoption process for a number of years. Our daughter, Nettie, is just just one of the most exuberant people you've you've ever met and like she's such a gift to us and why would God give us this gift just to take away her dad when she was young um, and you know similar with with my son so um, if it was just me I mean <laughs> this sounds really silly, but sometimes I have the thought, well, I've been alive as long as I can remember, you know? Um, <laughs> like, I feel like I've had a good, like, I've had more time than I deserve in some sense. Um, um, but it's much more the the loss that others would have to go through that that sort of charged some of the fear and even anger. You know, the anger part of lament, like, why, why, Lord, would you hide your face? Um, and, um, and, and the anger there isn't just, you know, this is how I'm feeling, but also it's based off of God's covenant promise. Um, God promises to show his face. And so that's why the psalmist says, why are you hiding your face? You know, it's not just a random thing that he's saying. Um, um, God, the covenant Lord promises to um, um, not forsake his people. So when Jesus says, why have you forsaken me? It's 
it's a kind of trust in God's promise that is also throwing God's promise back at him in a sense. But yeah, or go ahead. reconciling that with, you're saying, you know, oftentimes God's doing great work through sick people in these hospitals. And I think it's common here in culture, when, when you, when, if God heals you, he answers your prayer. If you're not healed, he didn't answer your prayer. Yeah, yeah, um, yeah. How do you reconcile that when you're, when you're working with other cancer patients in your own ministry, um, answers to prayer in that sense? I mean, I feel like we all want to just pray for healing. And, and, and that's a yes or no mm-hmm, response. Mm-hmm. Is, is I think oftentimes the common you know, response to that, but is that, you know, obviously not. And you pray through the Psalms, you're not necessarily praying for healing, right? Mm-hmm, mm-hmm. Do you pray for healing? Yeah, yeah. Well, yeah, that's a really probing question, and the way you put it is gets to the heart of the issue. And I think that I've gone through different Yeah, it's a question that is often on my mind, talking with others and just on on my mind. I think that um, let me let me say it this way: with um, with the Psalms, what is most often asked for is to see the Lord's face, to be with Him in His temple, and when there is when the psalmist cries out for deliverance. Um, it's from a place that feels like being abandoned. And so I think we should pray for healing in this broader sense. Um, but um, healing in terms of be use this person, this community in your in your purposes and um, bring them into your lovely presence. Um, and that could be now, it could be in the life to come, but it's certainly not going to happen on our timetable. And um, in some ways, I think prayers for healing that that think that the only way that it's an answer is if it happens right now are... I think they have too low of expectations. Like, um, Lazarus was raised, which is pretty cool, right? (laughs) But he was not resurrected. His body started to decay right away. We have a hope for a body that will not decay. And whether we have five more years or 50 more years, it's really a breath. I mean, that's what the psalmist says. Um, And so to pray for this bigger healing, both for the person and for the work that God does through this person in in the kingdom, um, is to, I think, it's actually a bolder prayer in the end. um, but I mean, in praying for someone who has an incurable cancer, 
I mean, even just to use the phrase incurable cancer, it sounds, some people think I have a lack of faith. And I mean, it just takes a little bit of explanation in the sense like, okay, well, say that somebody prays for me and then I have absolutely no cancer in my body, uh, uh, MRI, nothing detects any cancer. I will still be on chemotherapy for the rest of my life because even if I have no detectable cancer levels, the oncologists are quite sure that it's coming back. Now, they could be wrong. That would be great. You're right. Um, but I think what we often want to do when we pray is to make it undone. Like, whatever bad thing, go back to what it was before. But it's not going back to what it was before, no matter what. <laughs> and so um, I think that um, that's why in the book I say prayers of healing should always be accompanied with prayers of lament. Um, because there is a loss, no matter what. Um, 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 and I believe God is free, and God can heal in whatever ways he wants. Um, um, and yet, I also think that the bigger, the bigger healing and the bigger promise is actually um, looking to this broader movement into the Lord's temple, and not just, oh, I get ten more years, or something like that. So... It's time to go, unfortunately. Um, maybe stay around and ask questions sure. afterwards. Sure. Have a couple minutes. Um, Todd, just thank you. I, mean, I can just feel it in the room. That there's a real connection here, and just your willingness to come and speak of your <coughs> your breadth of learning, but also your experience and how the two things are wed. Um, it's uh, it's really I'm grateful. Thank you. Thanks. It's a pleasure to be here. It's really so good to have you. Um, come back tonight, um, and also Tuesday at. 11? Is that when Beeson's Chapel is? You might know, Kristen. Um, they'll be speaking at Beeson's Chapel service, which is there right in the middle of Sanford on Tuesday at 11. So come in here, Todd. So may I pray for us? Sure. Gracious Father, thank you for Todd, um, for Rachel and for their children, um, for your work being wrought in your way um, in their life. Uh, Lord, um, let us have a modesty as we approach you, as we approach Todd and and his cancer, um, we pray, Lord, that you would uh, speak, um, speak into his body, but speak through him uh, to us, um, give us an assurance of the hope of being hidden uh, in you, that we are well, um, as he is well. Um, thank you for Todd and for his being here. Um, bless his time with us. In Jesus' name, amen. Amen. You've been listening to audio from the Cathedral Church of the Advent. If you live in Birmingham or find yourself visiting, we hope you'll join us at one of our Sunday services. Find out more at adventbirmingham.org.